today. And uh, so we are glad that all of you are here, especially if you're visiting with us for the first time. Welcome. Uh, I will let you know this. There is a whole lot more elbow room at the noon service. I just, you know, I'm fine with uh, as many people as want to come. I, I love it. But uh, I know that a lot of us are like, oh, man, there's, there's nowhere to sit. And it's hot in here. And part of that is because the baptistry is full. We are doing uh, baptisms this weekend. We didn't have any at this particular service, but there will, it'll be full again next week because we got some more next week. So if you're thinking, oh, I was going to get baptized, I forgot two things. You can do it today. You know, we can just, I mean, we'll, we'll do it anytime. But uh, also you could say, you know, I want to do it next week and uh, let your family know and everybody can be here. So anyway, uh, also Ignite, Rev, and Thrive, all three of our youth events are taking place this week and Bible study is Wednesday at 6.30, and there's child care available for that, and um, we're in the book of John, chapter 6, looking at Jesus feeding the 5,000 people. So today we're in part 35, uh, or 36, of uh, the story of the Bible, and we're in kind of a weird place. Uh, last week we looked at the resurrection, the guarantee that the great rescue was actually accomplished the week before that, the cross, the event at which the great rescue was actually accomplished. Um, and now we are going to spend like the next four weeks looking at sort of this weird in-between time where Jesus doesn't go straight back to heaven after his resurrection. He hangs out on this earth for like 40 days with his friends, throwing surprise parties, appearing, disappearing, disguising himself. It's very strange. And we looked at some of that last week, and uh, like I say, we'll continue to do that for the next several weeks. But today we're going to look at the story where he walks with a couple of his disciples who don't realize it's him because he's disguised himself from Jerusalem to this little town of Emmaus, which is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And the whole story revolves around the concept of hope. Um, in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the Bible says that hope will never disappoint us. But I don't know about you. I read that sometimes and I'm like, really? Because I've been disappointed in my life. And what does that mean then that hope will never disappoint us if sometimes I'm disappointed? And I think that it doesn't mean that we will never have disappointments, obviously, right? Good thing because uh, none of us would be feeling good about that. But Jesus said it in uh, the night before he died. During the Last Supper, in John 16, he said to his friends, In this world you will have trouble, but be brave because I have defeated the world. And what he would do then later that night, well, the next day, as he hung on the cross, he proved that the first part of that, of that sentence is true. In this world you will have trouble. And then on Sunday, the day of the resurrection, he proved that the last part of it is true where he said, but be brave because I have defeated the world. And what he shows us throughout the Bible, what his followers show us throughout the rest of the New Testament is, yes, we will have disappointment in our lives, but ultimately, those who follow Jesus will recognize this sentence to be absolutely true because hope in the end is not an emotion. It's not a period of time where everything is going your way. It's not, a, it's not even a concept. Hope in the end, is a person. And the plan is that even though we may struggle with that sentence from time to time on this side of eternity, and it takes a lot of faith to say, yes, I believe that that's true. 
The plan is that when you close your eyes for the last time on this side of eternity and open them up for the first time on the other side of eternity, that you would sit there and say, okay, now I know. Now I understand Romans chapter 5, verse 5, and I agree 100%. And so what I want to do today is take a look at this story, Jesus walking with his friends to this town of Emmaus, and just sort of make a couple of observations about hope that we can learn from this story. And the first observation is this. When it comes to hope, sometimes hope comes late. If you remember the story that we uh, looked at last week on Easter Sunday, a group of women go early on Sunday morning to the tomb to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. And they, for them and everybody else, they believe that hope has died. They believe it's over. There, there's no, no coming back from that. That nothing good could ever come from, from, from death, from the grave, from hell itself. And so they're on their way to prepare the body for burial. And they get there and they find instead an empty tomb and an angel who says... He's not dead. He's, he's arisen just like he said he would. So go tell his disciples that he will join you and them soon. For those ladies, hope came early. They run back, most of them, to go and tell the disciples. One woman stays behind, Mary Magdalene. And she's there at the tomb wondering what's going on. She doesn't know what to think. And Jesus comes, remember we talked about it last week, the first surprise party in the graveyard where he disguises himself and it's a surprise. And, and for her, hope comes early. She runs back. She doesn't, she, she doesn't just have to say, we saw the empty tomb and we saw an angel who said he was alive. She says, I have seen the Lord. Now, the disciples aren't sure what to do with that. Two of them, Peter and John, they run to the tomb. They get there and they see the empty tomb. They see the grave clothes folded up nicely, laying on this little uh, slab of rock where they had laid the body. And they, they leave that tomb, the Bible says, Peter wondering, but John believing. For John, hope came early. But the rest of the disciples, hope comes late for them. Same thing happens to us in our lives, right? Sometimes hope comes early. Some of you look at that verse, hope will never disappoint us. And you're like, amen, I believe that 100%. I even feel it right now. Others of us are looking at that saying, man, I wish that was true. Or I hope that it's true. Or I pray that it's true. Or maybe you're in a place where you're just saying, no, that is not true. And there were people that were there that day who Jesus had told them dozens of times, they're going to kill me. They're going to put me in the grave. But don't worry, I'm coming back. And none of them believed it. And who can blame them, right? I mean, that's, that's, how could that happen? And so one of those people for whom hope comes late, his name is Cleopas. And he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives out um, this town called Emmaus, about seven miles away. And he's so sure that it's not true, that there is no hope at this point, that he just, he just heads back to home. And one other person is traveling with him. We don't know exactly who it is, but we'll get to that in just a minute. So they start walking home, because at least for Cleopas, hope is dead. Luke says this in Luke 24, verse 15. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and began walking with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. This is the second sort of surprise party slash prank that Jesus pulls on his disciples after his resurrection. This is just later on in the afternoon, on Sunday. 
right? There's rumors flying, but, but Cleopas isn't convinced. What he thinks is that God has promised to never leave him or forsake him, and now God has left him all alone. Feeling a little bit like this guy. Okay, then that's good. Okay, now look. Now. In this scene, Cleopas feels, you know? He's like, God has left me alone. He has no idea that Jesus is walking by his side. Now, where Luke says here that these two people were walking, they were talking and discussing, right? That word discussing, that's, a, that's an anemic way to translate that Greek word into an English word. You know, I, I think of discussing, I think of two people like, you know, oh, well, what do you think? That word in Greek, what it meant was a spirited debate. These people are arguing. Now, why are they arguing? Well, in order to understand that, we got to try to figure out who the second person is, right? And Luke never tells us. He just says that Cleopas is one of them, but that these two people are going home. Now, in John chapter 19, we read that at the foot of the cross, one of the people that was there was a woman named Mary who was married to a man named Cleopas. So we know that Cleopas, his wife, was at the cross on Friday night. Now, most scholars believe that she was also one of the Marys that on Sunday morning is going out to the tomb to finish preparing Jesus' dead body for burial and sees the empty tomb and sees an angel saying, he's not dead, he's alive. She's run back. Hope came early for her. She comes, and th th while everybody's telling the rest of the disciples, you can bet that she's grabbing her husband saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And now he's like, mm, I don't think so, let's go home better believe they were arguing, right? I mean, what would you do? How would you feel? You're like, we can't go home. And he's like, come on, we're going home. You know, the, the hope is dead. No, hope is not dead. They are, Judy sometimes says, you know, we'll be talking or something, you know, or I'll, I'll be completely ignoring where she's at and I'll say something really stupid and she'll go, okay, it's time for us to have a meaningful discussion, right? That's what she calls them. Um, <laughs> That's what they were having. They were having a meaningful, very meaningful discussion. And Jesus comes and just starts walking with them. And he just asks them, he's like, so what's going on? And they're like, where have you been that you don't know what everybody in Jerusalem is talking about right now? And Jesus says, well, tell me. And so Cleopas starts telling him there was this guy named Jesus. And he could do things nobody else could do. And he, could, he said things Nobody else said he painted a picture of God that was unlike anything that anybody has ever heard of. And he said he would never leave us, and now he's dead. And this is how he finishes his explanation. Luke 24, verse 21, he says, But we were hoping, we were really hoping that he was the one who would redeem Israel. And I don't know all of you, and some of you I don't know very well at all, even if I know you a little bit, but I know one thing about everybody in this room. You can identify with that phrase, I was really hoping that something would happen that didn't happen, and now you feel like hope is gone, or then you felt like hope is gone, maybe. And, and all of us go through this. All of us go through these disappointments, these disappointments that make us look at passages like Romans 5.5 5, that hope will never disappoint us and say, man, I wish that was true. I hope that that's true. I pray that it's true or that isn't true, right? All of us go through disappointments like that. And that's just part of the way that the human life works, living in a world that is in 
infected with sin, that's just what happens. Sometimes hope comes early, sometimes hope comes late. Sometimes hope comes and then goes and then comes back. And this story of Jesus walking with these people, one of whom at least thinks hope is dead, gives us a pretty good idea of how Jesus handles those of us who are struggling with hope coming late. Second observation about hope is that only Jesus knows my story. Only Jesus knows my story. Now, you may be thinking, okay, so what does that have to, have to do with hope? The reason that this is important for hope is that what happens to us is we think that whatever story we're in the middle of, we think, okay, I understand my story now. I understand what's going on, right? I know what story I'm living. That's what was going on with Cleopas, right? When Jesus was alive, he was like, I know what, what my story is here. I know what it is. I can see. And then Jesus dies and he's like, okay, I was wrong when I thought that was my story. Now, now I know what my story is. My story now, this, now I know what my story is. And what's going to happen in just a few minutes when Jesus shows him, no, hope is not dead. He's going to be like, oh, whoa, I was wrong both of those times. Now, now, and, and we do the same thing. We think that we know what our story is when we're living inside of it. Only Jesus knows our story from the beginning to the end. And here's what this story teaches us in the rest of the Bible. It is only as we start to understand his story that our story starts to make sense, any kind of sense at all. Um, as Cleopas makes his sort of explanation of what's going on in Jerusalem and how disappointed he is, this is how Jesus responds in Luke 24, verse 25. Right? They don't realize it's him yet, but he says to them, the stranger, <laughs> so thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen to the Messiah, that he had to suffer, and only then enter into his glory? Now, I don't know how Cleopas reacted to a stranger talking to him this way, but let's watch this. Think that what he's saying is, dude, you are Lord of the idiots, right? That he's that he's like just, just giving him a hard time for not being able to comprehend what's going on. That's not what he says. He doesn't say you should have understood everything that was happening. What he says is you should have trusted the one who told you that he had everything under control. That's what he should have done. It's like Jesus doesn't expect us to understand everything. That's, Jesus knows the story. We don't know the story. He knows that. The rest of the Bible is basically saying, look, you're never really going to understand your story. The more you understand God's story, the more you'll understand yours. But there are still going to be things that happen that you're just going to be like, why did that happen? And the Bible is constantly saying, I wish I could explain it to you. And I know that, that, that I'm never going to be able to help you make sense of this. But trust me. I am working out everything in the midst of this broken world, broken by sin. I am working it out for your best good that I possibly can in the midst of all of this chaos that is brought into the world because of our sin, right? Not just what we do to each other, not just what we do to ourselves, but when Adam and Eve sinned, sin came into the world and broke the creation. Sickness, disease, accidents, Natural disasters, every accident, every, every act of God, they call it. That's got to just bug him every time he hears it. It's like that is an act of sin, not an act of God. 
And the whole book of Job is about this one question. Job has questions. Why are bad things happening to me? Why is this happening? And he asks a bunch of questions. And at the end of the book of Job, God comes down and talks to Job. And if you read that, God's response to Job, he never answers the question, why is this happening to me? What he does is he says, Job, I care deeply about you, about what you're going through, about all of it. I care more than you could possibly understand. And at the end of the book of Job, Job basically says, I still don't understand. I still don't have the answer, but I'm learning to trust the one who does have the answers. And that's what Jesus is saying to Cleopas right here. Why didn't you believe? I told you, right? Or he told you, right? I mean, it's like, well, this is Jesus, but he doesn't know it's Jesus. And so he's trying to get Cleopas to understand, and he's hoping that we'll understand the same thing. My story will only start to make sense when I start to see it within the context of Jesus's story. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible says that it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Part of the overall purpose he's working out in everything and everyone. You, you see it over and over and over in the Bible. The more, the more you understand God's story, the more you'll understand your story. And the more that when you start to not understand your story, that you will, you'll go back to trusting the one who does understand your story and waiting until you get to the other side of whatever you're in so that then you can start moving forward and, and getting back on track. And so Jesus, what he does is he starts explaining to Cleopas his story, the story of God. Luke 24, verse 27. Then starting with what Moses and all the prophets had said about him, Jesus began to explain everything that had been written about himself in the scriptures. Man, I wish that Luke had recorded that script, that, that sermon. I mean, that had to have been one of the most amazing sermons ever preached. Matthew recorded the entire Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Why couldn't Luke have recorded the, the sermon of, on the way to Emmaus? You know what I mean? He didn't. And so, you know, we had to really kind of search when we went through the Old Testament, looking for where Jesus was in the pages of the Old Testament. But it was all based on this, that Jesus said, I am everywhere in there. I'm everywhere in there. And when he gets done, Cleopas starts to see something. They, they would say later, weren't our hearts burning in our chests as he spoke? He was telling them his story, the story of God. But as he told them that story, suddenly their story started to make a whole lot more sense. And that leads us to the third and final point for today. Understanding Jesus's story brings more clarity to my story. That's, that's the way that it works. And what it also does is when my story becomes all murky and foggy and, and confusing again, learning to trust him helps get us through those moments where we feel like hope has died again. And so Jesus, he gets to Emmaus with them, and he makes like he's going to keep going. And they say, no, 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 stay and eat with us. And so he says, okay. They still disguise, right? They don't realize it's him. They sit down to eat. Luke 24, verse 30. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. Surprise party number two, right? And they are blown away. They jump up. You know, they've been through the ringer, right? They've gone through a crucifixion. They've spent 
a couple of days terrified that they were the next ones to be arrested and killed. Now there's all these rumors going around. They've had a fight all the way from Jerusalem to Emmaus over whether he was alive and whether she really saw an angel. And now they've just sat down at home and suddenly they realize that what's going on and they jump up and they run back to Jerusalem. And they run into where the disciples are and Cleopas says, it's true. It's true. We saw him. Now, I love where it says that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This, this is a form of ministry I've, I've come to realize. Emmaus Road Ministry. I don't know. I, I was Googling it to see if, 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 if it's out there, if it's like somebody wrote a book, but I can't find it anywhere. But this is sort of the way that Riverside does church. It's the way we've always done church. Jesus walked with those who were doubting and who were struggling and who were, were, were in some ways fighting their faith. And, and what we do here is we sort of do the same thing. When I first took over here over 17 years ago, I was taken over for one of the most amazing men I've ever known. And it became painfully obvious very quickly I was not him. And I couldn't do the same things that he had done. We really weren't going to be able to be the same church that we had been when he was here. And so we went from a church of about 80 to a church of about 35 in just about a month. And our heads were spinning, those of us who were left here. And we were like, okay, so what does God want us to do? And so we met for about six months every Wednesday night to say, okay, who does God want us to be? How does God want us to go about doing church here? And one of the things that we felt very strongly about was that God wanted us to, to walk with people that maybe were still struggling with their faith, that maybe were still struggling with their behaviors and their attitudes, and, and maybe people that, that other churches might not make them feel welcome at their place. And we were like, we feel like that's what God's asking us to do. We had no idea what we were getting into because we were a group of churchy people, right? We had all grown up in church. We all knew the, the lingo, right? We knew the secret handshake. We could, we could fit in at any church in this town if we wanted to. But we were like, we feel like God's asking us to be weirdos. And so, okay, we'll be weirdos for, for Jesus. And so we were like, we started praying that God would send us the people that maybe other churches might not be pleased to have walk through their doors. And it didn't take long for this family to walk in. It was their, our first visiting family in like four months that I had been here. And we were like, oh, visitors, you know? <laughs> and they were interesting people. They had never been to church before, um, at least not much. He had been a little bit as a kid. Uh, he had grown up believing that Jesus was God's son and he had no problem. But their entire experience with spirituality up until that point had been through Alcoholics Anonymous, because they were both recovering addicts. And so when they went to an AA meeting, when they got to the second step, you got to pick your higher power uh, and turn your life over to him. He had no problem. Jesus is my higher power. And Jesus saved his life. Well, she grew up not just an atheist, but despising church people. Um, she grew up in Berkeley. So, you know, go figure, right? And so she... Uh, she gets to the AA meeting and her, her, her sponsor says, you've got to choose a higher power. She goes, I don't believe in a higher power. He goes, well, you've got to choose something because that's the only way this works. And so she was kind of mad at him and she walked outside of the meeting and looked and saw a tree. So she thought, tree's bigger than me. 
tree's been here longer than me. The tree is my higher power. And she thought she was kind of, you know, I'll show them. I'll pray to a tree. Psst, higher power. And so that's what she did. She started praying to the tree and working the steps. And she said, suddenly she started to see that not only was there a personal force in the tree, there was a personal force behind the tree. And she said, so she kind of labeled that nature. And she kept, so then she's praying to nature. And she's going on working the steps. She goes, pretty soon she started to realize it was much bigger than just nature. So she called it the universe. And eventually she got to where she just called it God. She was like, I don't know who God is. Uh, it's not the God of those Christians. I know it can't be because, ugh, you know. And so she goes, but, but, but God. So when they walked in the door of this church, she was really kind of like, you know. And she goes, but she's, she's telling us this story, me and Judy. And she says, and so I figured, you know, the whole God thing, it saved, it saved our lives. She goes, so we figured, you know what? The God thing works so well, we'd give the Jesus thing a try. And I remember thinking, can you say that? Is that okay to say out loud? Is she, is she excluded now? Did God be like, I heard that, that's it, you know? But I didn't say any of that. I was just like, awesome, you know? They like doubled our attendance because they were, you know, two husband and wife and three kids. I was like, yeah, anybody, man. And so... And so they started going to this church, and we started walking with them, just like Jesus walked with those two on the road to Emmaus. This way of ministry is like saying, we will stand in for Jesus as a sort of poor substitute and walk with you until you get to the point where you can see that he has been there all along, that your eyes are open, and you can see that it's been him there all along. And the whole way, I kept thinking, are they okay? Are they, are, they, are they progressing in the manner in which they should be progressing? Do they think the right way? Which the right way for me meant exactly the way I think, right? Do they think correctly? And I, was, I wanted to interrogate them to make sure, right? And Judy was like, don't do that. You are going to, you know, it's like, it's like you know, you're trying to, to lure some bunnies, you know, with some, and then, and then here you are going, ah, like that, you know, you're just going to chase them away. And I'm like, she got me this little plaque, um, it, little girly plaque, you know, I was like, Psh, but I was like, all right. It, it had this picture of uh, a watering can, watering the ground where underneath were some seeds that had been planted and they were putting down roots, but you couldn't see that from the top, right? And the plaque just says, to plant a seed and wait is to believe. And I was like, all right, I get the picture, okay? I won't interrogate them, yeah? Because I want to, I plant some seeds a, a week, two weeks later, nothing seems to be happening. And I want to start looking to see if, if, if anything is happening. But as soon as you do, that seed's done, right? You've killed the seed. So I, I've still got that thing hanging where I see it on a regular basis. And it reminds me, okay, you know, we're going to let God work in people's hearts. And we're just going to walk with people. It's not the only way to do church. It's just the way we feel like God's asking us to do church. And so we walked with her. I remember about six months later, she came to me and she said, I still don't understand a lot about this Jesus thing. And I thought, yep, she hasn't gotten it yet. You know, I, I'm like, I knew it. And she goes, but I can tell that blood is a big deal to you people, right? And I was like, yeah, the blood is pretty important. And she goes, so I would like to organize a blood drive. I think that those two things would go hand in hand, would be just perfect. And I was like, Part of me was like, that is so awesome. She is getting it more than I thought she was. 
or at least she's trying to. And then part of me was like, I don't want to give blood. <laughs> I'm terrified, you know? I don't want to be, you know, have the blood mobile pull up out here after church and have everybody go there and be, me be the only guy that's like, no, I think I got a cold, <laughs> you know? Or be the only guy that passes out in the blood mobile. But I was like, I just said, I think that's awesome. Do it. And so she did. And I, I gave blood, man. And it was like, I was like, man, I am really sacrificing here. And then I remember Jesus on the cross. I'm like, oh, hallelujah. Anyway, I'm just a poor substitute for him, right? But, but we kept walking with them. One day, a guest preacher came here to preach. About a year after they started coming to this church. His name is Marvin Phillips. Um, and some of you may have been here when he came. Uh, he's sort of my spiritual hero. I never thought I could ever be a pastor because I'm like, who would go to a church where I was the pastor, you know? And it's like, <laughs> here you are. But um, he, when I saw him, I thought, if I could be a pastor like him, then okay, maybe I could do this because he had the best sense of humor. He was so much fun. And he did this sermon on uh, Acts chapter 8, a story of this Ethiopian official who is riding along in his chariot, reading the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, the story of the suffering servant, the rescuer whose sacrifice would pay the price and, and redeem the entire planet. And Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, goes up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, no, how can I if nobody tells me what's going on? Is the author talking about himself here or someone else? And the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, all it says is, starting with that passage, Philip preached Jesus to him. And that's all it says. And the next words, the next line says, the Ethiopian says, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip, well, Marvin pointed out, Philip didn't go, well, let me check first to make sure that your faith is sound. What do you think? You know, let me ask you a bunch of questions so I can make sure that whatever faith you're responding to that says, I want to get baptized, that, that it's right. He doesn't do any of that. He just baptizes the guy. And Marvin's point was, we make conversion and following Jesus so complicated sometimes, and it's just not rocket science. You want to follow Jesus? You get baptized. Then you figure it out as you go along. So he got done. Great sermon. One of the greatest sermons I've still ever heard. And I got up, it's only like 35 of us in this room. I said, you know, if anybody's got any questions, I'll be here till everything's done. Everybody's gone. You can stick around and talk to me. And, you know, I said a closing prayer and I started walking up this aisle. And Brian, the, the, one of the, the guy, that, that the dad of the family that had come, he stands up and he stops me. He goes, and I mean, it's like he's loud. He's a big dude. He's a little bigger than me. He was a bodybuilder. He goes, I've got a question. I said, what is it? He goes, why shouldn't I be baptized? And I go, well, you should. And he goes, all right. And I'm like, you mean now? I'm like, the water's not warm. I mean, that is freezing water. And he's like, well, I'll do it if you'll do it. And I'm like, it's like the blood mobile all over. I'm like, I've only got to stand up to there in cold water. I'm like, he's going all the way under. I'm like, if he's willing to do it. And he's like, yeah, and she wants to do it too. I'm like, let's do it. I told everybody, we're going to have two baptisms right now. And everybody was so excited. They all gathered around these people that we've been walking with for, for a year now, right? And it hasn't always been easy. The first time ever in the history of this church that I know of that our Bible studies are peppered with four-letter words. And, and everybody's like, you know, and we just keep going. 
And so I come up here and I'm in the, I'm getting ready at the pool, ready. I'm scooping dead spiders out of the water because that's how much we used that thing in the year after I took over here. And, and I go walking up to them and they're standing kind of in the middle there with, you know, this little group of, of our churchy church, Christian, professional Christian people that are like, you know, we think this is what God's asking us to do. And I say to him, are you ready to get baptized? And I'm quoting him now, okay, verbatim. I said, are you ready to get baptized? And he said, hell yes. And I was like, <laughs> and I didn't do it. I, I, I'm pretty good at keeping my, my reactions, but I'm thinking, and I look at Marvin, you know, my hero, and I'm like, how is he going to respond? And he goes, awesome, just like that. And I look at our other group of little churchy Christians, and, and Judy's grandpa, Grandpa Dick, some of you remember him. He was about 90 at the time. He just goes, let's do it then. And it was the stamp of approval, man. We came up here, and we got into that water, and I... I looked at, at Brian and said, Brian, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and your Savior? And he said, absolutely. And I said, then I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And under he went. And it was freezing. Like I said, he came up. Just, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so she's watching this whole thing, right? And she's short. She's a little thing. And she comes walking up after that. And she stands next to me. And I said, Julie, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and your Savior? And she goes, and I am freaking out inside. And I'm praying, help me, God, help me, God. You know, like that guy on the, on the street there? I'm like, save me, Jesus, save me, Jesus. I, why didn't I think to tell her what I was going to ask her? Believe me, I tell everybody. what I, If you can answer yes to these two questions, then I will baptize you. And so, you know, it's like I'm sitting there and I'm freaking out and I'm trying to decide what to do. And about that time, her face completely changes. She suddenly goes from uncertain, questioning, almost doubtful, to all of a sudden it's like she just becomes radiant almost. And she beams up at me and she goes, I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God and my Savior. And I, then I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son. I mean, I was like, no way I'm letting anything, you know. But I was thinking later about that transformation that I saw in her face. And I realized, uh, it may have been the next time that I read this story, I was like, suddenly her eyes were open. And she realized that, that these people that had been walking next to her this whole time, poor substitute stand-ins for Jesus, it was actually him all along. And she saw that. And it transformed her life. And what we see in this concept, well, in the story of, of Jesus walking with his disciples and sort of this concept of the ministry of Emmaus Road ministry, walking with people until they figure out what's going on, what we see is what really what the story of the entire rest of the Bible is. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, the Bible says, if we give up on him, he does not give up, for there is no way he can be false to himself. He walks with Cleopas. He didn't give up on him. He walked with them until he was ready to see that it had been Jesus walking with them all along. Adam and Eve, he didn't give up on them. Why? Because he can't be false to himself. Me, Ed, he never gave up on me. Why? Because he can't be false to himself. All of you, he'll never give up on you. And so because of that, there is nobody that we won't walk with. 
We get criticized sometimes by other churches. Like I said, it's not the only way to do church. It's not even necessarily the best way to do church. But, you know, different churches meet different people's needs. It's the way we feel like God's asking us to do church. And when I saw that transformation come over her face, I was hooked. This little church was hooked on this concept of walking with people wherever they happened to be at that moment as a poor stand-in for Jesus until the moment came where he opened their eyes and they saw it was him all along. And that's the hope of Easter, that he will never give up. And so I guess the message for us is never give up on yourself because he won't give up on you and never give up on anyone else. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you never, ever give up on us. Teach us to become like you to walk with the people that are standing in for you until we get to a point where you can open our eyes and we can see that it was you all along and to then walk next to others who are having a hard time seeing you, seeing hope until such time as you can open their eyes and they can see that it was you walking with them all along. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.